following sermon was recorded during the Sunday morning gathering of Grace Community Church in Las Cruces, New Mexico. We are a group of Christians that exists to joyfully extol and magnify the true and living God, to faithfully proclaim the Christ-centered word, to build each other up by speaking the truth in love, and to bring the good news of the gospel to our city and world so that the Lamb who was slain may receive the full reward for his sufferings. For more information about us, please visit gcclascruces.com. I invite you to take your Bible and open up with me to the Gospel according to Matthew and chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. This morning, we want to pick up our study of the Gospel of Matthew, where he brings us face to face with the glory of God as it is seen most brilliantly in the face of Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. It's with a great sense of privilege and honor that I invite you to hear and heed the life-imparting, faith-arousing mind-renewing, heart-enlarging words of the true and living God. As we prepare our hearts, I would remind you of these words from the prophet Isaiah. All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of Yahweh blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, But the word of our God will stand forever. Matthew chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came from Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled And all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt 
and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. And they remained there and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Egypt, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Grace Community Church, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Every human being is a worshiper. That is, every single person is passionately committed and religiously devoted to someone or something. They revolve the entirety of their lives around someone or something. Their decision-making is based upon what they worship and are ultimately devoted to. And so while many people claim that they are not religious, make no mistake about it, they are worshipers. We know this to be a fact because God's word is truth. And in Romans chapter 1, verses 24 and 25, Paul tells us that God gives human beings over and he gives them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchange the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. The Bible is crystal clear in these two areas. Number one, everyone is a worshiper. And number two, everyone's worship falls into one of two categories. They worship either the creator or the created. The creator or the created. That applies to every single person in this room. Be honest with yourself. You either worship and are ultimately devoted to your creator or you worship and are devoted to some aspect of his creation. Whether that's someone else or yourself, your money, your pleasure, your family, your children. You are religiously devoted to someone or something. And the Bible teaches that for those whose worship falls into the category of the created, because they refuse to worship the creator, the Bible teaches that they are idolaters. 
simply defined, idolatry is the worship of created things. The worship of created things. When I make the claim that everyone is a worshiper, I'm simply pointing back to the purpose for which you and I were created. We were created to worship God. That is, we were created to find our full and lasting enjoyment in the glory of God as our greatest treasure. But ever since sin entered the world back in Genesis chapter 3, you and I and every human being exchange his glory for created things. And so when God in his mercy saves us, he saves us out of our idolatry. Biblical repentance is turning from idols to serve and worship the living and true God. That's what repentance is, turning from your idols to serve him. And let me just say that when, by the grace of God, we get this right, when we turn from created things to the creator himself, to worship him, to treasure him, to value him, to serve him, we are most satisfied. Biblically, we ought to be in 100% agreement with the saying, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And in Matthew chapter 2, we are given a biblical portrait of God-honoring, Christ-centered worship, the very thing for which you and I were created. We were made to worship God and to find our full and lasting enjoyment in him and his glory as our greatest treasure. This is what we were made for. In Matthew chapter 1, we were confronted last time with the identity and birth of God's Son into this world. As we learned, he is the long-awaited Son of David who came to rule and reign as shepherd and king over the kingdom of God. We saw secondly that he is the long-awaited Son of Abraham, the descendant of Abraham who came to bring God's ultimate blessing to people all over the world. We learn that he is the long-awaited Messiah who is anointed with the almighty spirit of God to carry out God's eternal purpose and plan. And then we learn fourthly that he is Emmanuel, which means God with us. He is Emmanuel who came to reconcile sinners to himself and to inaugurate the new creation that will ultimately bloom and blossom in all of its fullness when he returns to make all things new on the last day. This is who Jesus is. And now as we come to Matthew chapter 2, we are confronted with how we are to respond to this glorious king. We are to respond with costly, joyful, affectionate, humble, uninhibited worship. As we jump into this chapter, it can be divided into two main sections. Verses 1 through 11, the king adored with joyful reverence. The king adored with joyful reverence. And then in verse 12 all the way through 23, the king preserved by divine providence. The king preserved by divine providence. And I think it's fitting that we approach this chapter 
together this morning, not as passive bystanders, but as active participants who join the wise men in worshiping the Son of God. For this is what we were made for. This is why we exist. And this is what God saves sinners for. And so let's look at verses 1 through 11. The king adored with joyful reverence. And as we do this, I want to call your attention to three features of this passage. The inquisitiveness of the wise men, the intimidation of King Herod, and the indifference of the religious leaders. And so note, first of all, the inquisitiveness of the wise men. Watch how Matthew begins verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came from Jerusalem, came to Jerusalem, sorry, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So here, Matthew introduces the main characters of this story. There's Jesus, of course, who we saw last week is the son of David, the son of Abraham, Emmanuel, the Christ. He introduces us to Herod, who is reigning over Jerusalem and Judea. At this time, Herod's reign began about 40 B.C., and it ended about 4 A.D., But he was appointed as the king by Roman authority. And so the Jews hated this guy. He wasn't a full-blooded Jew, so that made it worse. He was an Idumean. But in the beginning, the Jews protested Herod's appointment to kingship. And so the news of another ruler being born to the Jews opened up old wounds For Herod, who was super sensitive to any other ruler other than himself, he also introduces us, Matthew, to these wise men, magi in the the Greek. This word normally refers to those who mixed Zoroastrianism with astrology and black magic. In fact, in Daniel chapter 2 in the Old Testament, The Magi are associated with diviner priests, mediums, and sorcerers. The Greek word actually appears elsewhere in Acts chapter 13, verses 6 through 10, where they they come to the island as, as far as Paphos, and they came to a certain magician. There's the word. And now listen to how Luke describes this guy. A Jewish false prophet named Bar Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elimus, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy. Will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? So this magician 
wasn't like the David Copperfield or, if you're from Las Cruces, the Jamie O'Hara that comes to the birthday parties. Don't think rabbit out of the hat. Think black magic. Think diviner. Think medium. Think sorcerer. And what's interesting, and it's really fascinating, as one scholar said, the magi are thus the epitome of the spiritual darkness of the pagan world. Their summons to worship the infant Messiah shows that Jesus is plundering Satan's kingdom and setting its captives free, even as a baby. These wise men, we're not told how many. Tradition tells us three. Tradition also tells us that they were kings. We three kings of... That's not even in the Bible. That's tradition. We assume three kings because there are three gifts given to Jesus. These guys probably came from Babylonia or Persia. But it's interesting because Matthew doesn't tell us all the details that we want to know, right? We want to know where did they come from? How many were there? How did they hear about Jesus? This all goes to show that God has to reveal Jesus in order for you to come to Jesus. God has to draw you to his son in order for you to come to his son. How they heard, when they heard, what they heard, we do not know. But you have the epitome of spiritual darkness in the pagan world migrating from the east to come and not just ask questions. They come to worship. They've come to bow down before an infant baby. This has God's sovereign mercy all over it. All over it. The inquisitiveness of the wise men, they want to see Jesus. They've come to worship Jesus, the King of the Jews. Notice that they saw this star, and they call it his star, verse 2, when it rose and have come to worship him. This past December, we all heard a lot, right, about the, the Christmas star. And, you know, these certain planets were, were overlapping and, and, and joining together. We're not told what this was. It could have been a comet. It could have been, um, you know, a lining of some planets. We're not told all those details. We're told the most important detail, that Christ is worthy of your worship. Christ is worthy of your worship. Moving on in verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. So we have not only the inquisitiveness of the wise men, now we have the intimidation of Herod. The thing you need to know about Herod is he was not a fan of potential replacements to his throne. In fact, history tells us that he killed several of his wives and several of his own sons because he felt threatened by them. And so now to hear about this king of the Jews, Herod's hair on his neck are standing up. They're up. He's on high alert. And he asks the wise men, he wants to know where this son is. He was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Jerusalem was probably troubled. That, that is his dynasty, his leadership. Herod was troubled because he saw a threat to his reign. 
Jerusalem's troubled, like, here we go again. Here we go again. This guy's going to fly off the handle. Who knows what he's going to do? So they're all troubled as well. And so he assembles all the chief priests and all the scribes. These are the religious leaders, the, 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 the council. And he asks them where the Christ was to be born. And they tell him, Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet. And he quotes from Micah chapter 5. You, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And so Herod then goes and he summons the wise men. Notice it says privately, secretly, apart from the religious leaders, because the religious leaders knew if, now, if he's now asking these wise men, he's, he's got something evil in mind. And so he summons them privately and he asks them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search for the child. And when you have found him, let me know because I want to worship him too. You see his deception. He doesn't want to worship. He wants to destroy the Christ child. He wants to destroy him. What's interesting is that when you go back to the Old Testament in Numbers chapter 22, you have the story of Balak and Balaam. The book of Numbers recounts the journey of the people of Israel from Mount Sinai to the edge of the promised land. Well, as they journeyed, as they made their way to the promised land, this scared and threatened another king, Balak, the king of Moab. And so he called Balaam, who was interestingly a magician, a seer, and he wants to curse the people of Israel. And what the outcome is, is that Balaam gives this final oracle that begins in Numbers twenty four sixteen, and it says this, the oracle of one who hears the sayings of God and has knowledge from the Most High, who sees a vision from the Almighty, who falls into a trance with his eyes uncovered. I see him, but not now. I perceive him, but not near. A star will come from Jacob. A scepter will arise from Israel. So it's interesting that you, what you have here in the book of Numbers is a man from the east prophesying about a star and a king among the Jews. And then in Matthew, you have these magi from the east following this star, leading them to the king of the Jews. And notice, notice verse 7. After Herod summons the wise men and secretly ascertains what time the star had appeared, he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go, I want to worship too. Let me know where he's at. I want to worship him too. And after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. Again, we're not told what this is. If this is like this cosmic firefly, you know, moving around, we're not told what it is. We're obviously impressed with the fact that God is doing something here. He is arranging the very heavens for his son, the God who rules the stars, who names the stars, who governs the stars, is aligning these stars in order to point to the one for whom the stars exist. For all things were created through Christ and for Christ. 
So these stars that we read about being created way back in the book of Genesis, we are seeing their purpose to point us to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what happens here. Well, verse 10, we get to the climax. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Now, obviously, this is some time after his birth, perhaps a year or two after his birth, if you put all the timelines together. So he's not, a, he's, he's, not, he's not there in the manger. He's not there with the shepherds. I mean, the Bible debunks so many of our, Christ, our Christmas traditions. But he's a child at this point, a young child with Mary. And they come and they fall down and worship him. Notice the descriptions of their worship. And this is what I'm calling God-honoring, Christ-centered worship. These men who are, are probably men of high rank and power and influence, who probably weren't traveling alone. You didn't travel alone back then. You had caravans, some to protect you. There were bandits along the road. These guys, probably not alone. They probably had a party with them. They come, and notice, first of all, that their worship is marked by rejoicing and joy. Matthew is telling us, God, through Matthew, is telling us what biblical worship is. And the first characteristic of biblical worship is that it is filled with joy. There's no, you know, there's a time, I get it. There's a time to be serious. There's a time to be somber and sober before the Lord. But there's time always to rejoice. Worship includes joy. Deep-rooted satisfaction and enjoyment in the God that you're worshiping. If worship is not a joy, you are not worshiping. If, 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 if joy is missing from your life consistently, no joy in God, you are not a worshiper of the living God. You might be a religious person. You show up on Sunday mornings, but there's no authentic worship proceeding from your heart because there's no joy we don't come because this is a drudging thing that we, oh, we got to go to church today. Friends, check your heart. If joy is not there, ask yourself, what's going on? Because in his presence is fullness of joy, and at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Secondly, we note that worship is not only joyful, filled with joy, Worship is affectionate. Affectionate. They fall down. Worship is it's, it's uninhibited. There's nothing holding these guys back. These men of influence and power come, and what do they do? They fall down before him. They fall down before him. They're acknowledging, even as a baby, he is infinitely higher than us, and we are taking our rightful place at his feet, on the earth, in the ground, where we were made. We are made from dust, and we identify with dust when we stand before the king of glory. Worship is not only marked by joy, but it's marked by humility and affections. Affections that lead us to bow, not only our hearts, but are everything before the king of glory. I guarantee you the first time you lay 
eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ physically, when you see him in that day, you will not be puffed up and proud and standing right next to him, Jesus, my homeboy. Friend, you will fall to your face, overwhelmed with his glory and majesty and kingship and authority. This is what true worship is, to fall down before him and know your place. They worship him. Some have pointed out that the word worship comes from the word worth-ship. Worship is acknowledging his worth, his supreme value. Friend, I have to ask you this morning, is Jesus just like everyone else in your worldview? Or do you see something in him, some value, worth in him that far and infinitely exceeds everyone else in this world? I mean, we're talking about the worth of Christ, the value of Christ. In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In him, the whole fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Friends, some of you have been in the midst of a a very wealthy person or a very wealthy place. You've been to palaces. You've seen gold. You've seen money. Many of you have been handed money. And you, you, you feel different, right, when something of worth is in your midst. You feel a sense of soberness. You're, you're, you know this is costly stuff, and you're in the presence of costly stuff. And so you're treading lightly. You're walking on eggshells, as it were. But can you imagine the one who is worth, infinitely worth more than all of that? Can you imagine being in his presence? The creator of galaxies, the creator of the heavens and the earth, of subatomic realities, of everything that there is, the creator of it all, standing before him, you fall down and you acknowledge his worth. Have your eyes been opened to see his worth and worthiness? Or do you just see him as any other guy out there? May God open your eyes to see and savor his worth, his glory, his value, as these wise men do. It's interesting that in the Gospel of Matthew, which is written primarily to persuade Jewish people that Jesus of Nazareth is their long-awaited Messiah, that in the Gospel of Matthew, the very first worshipers are Gentiles. Gentiles. These guys from the East. And not just, again, we're not talking about Magic trick, guys. We're talking about pagan men, black magic. These guys being drawn to worship the living Christ. It's amazing. Gentiles. So it's interesting how in Matthew, the very first worshipers are Gentiles who have come from the east. And at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, we are told to go to the Gentiles to the four corners of the earth, to bring this Christ to them. That is the great commission. And so we see the inquisitiveness of the wise men. They see the star. They are drawn sovereignly to come worship him. We see the intimidation of King Herod, troubled, threatened by this Christ child. He assembles the religious leaders. Here's an interesting thought here. 
In order to be made aware of what was happening in redemptive history, these Jewish leaders who should have been on top of it, who should have been involved in every aspect of this, are brought the news of the birth of the Messiah by a wicked Gentile king. Amazing. It's amazing. Herod says he wants to worship the child, but we know that he wants to murder the child. And anyone who would threaten his reign. Herod's a pretender. What's interesting is that in this chapter, you and I fit in somewhere. You and I are either like the wise men who offer to Christ costly worship, as we're going to see in a minute, or we're like Herod. We're just pretenders. We pretend to worship Christ, but there's really no reality there. The Bible calls that a hypocrite, a pretender. Your words don't actually match what you truly believe and desire and long for. You put on a mask around others. Friends, as we're going to see in a few weeks, there's an entire chapter in the Gospel of Matthew devoted to the wicked sin of hypocrisy. Matthew 23. People talk about what was the sin that Jesus hated most when he was here in the flesh. Some say it was unbelief. Some say it was idolatry. I would contend that it was hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. Herod's a hypocrite here. Do you identify with Herod? Do you identify with the wise men? Or do you identify with the indifferent religious leaders? Again, these guys should have been on top of it. The news of Christ comes to them from a wicked king, an insecure, wicked, self-centered king. And we're, told, we're not told here of any action that they took other than providing an answer. Religion in that day was dead. In fact, what's interesting is that the Herod who wants to kill Jesus now will fail, and the religious leaders who at this point are indifferent to the whole thing will be the ones to destroy him later. They will be the ones to pursue this Christ about 30 years from this point and kill him. And their, his blood would be on their hands. This goes to show that, as John chapter 1 says, he came to his own people, and his own people did not know him. They didn't even recognize him. The inquisitiveness of the wise men, the intimidation of Herod, and the indifference of the religious leaders comes out, and we have to ask the question, where do you fit into all of this? Are you, like Herod, threatened by the kingship of the Lord Jesus Christ? Many people live their lives because they're threatened by the kingship of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And that threatens you. And you don't like it. And you run from it. And you spend your entire life trying to drown out the reality of God and your obligation to fall down and worship him. You're threatened by everything he is, just like Herod. It's easy to point the finger at Herod. But guess what? As we were taught when we were little ones, we have three other fingers pointing back to us. We can point at Herod, 
But the reality is, are you threatened by the reign and rule of King Jesus? Are you threatened by the fact that he says all authority in heaven on on earth are given to me, is given to me? Are you threatened by that? Are you threatened by the fact that as Philippians chapter 2 tells us that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father? Does that threaten you? You might walk around proud now saying, I'm not going to bow. Friend, you will bow. You will bow. And so you, you have the choice. You bow now like the wise men in reverent worship and adoration of the King of kings and Lord of lords. Or you'll have your kneecaps busted on that day. Like angels who do his bidding. Angels who do his will. If there is any trace of pride in that day, Isaiah chapter 2 says that the Lord will crush the pride of men in that day. And you will bow before the king. And you will acknowledge your place in the universe. So are you threatened by King Jesus? Are you drawn to the glory and majesty of this king like these wise men? That's where you want to be this morning. That's the only safe place to be this morning is bowing your life, your all to King Jesus, what his will is, what his word says, what he wants from your life. Do not be like these indifferent religious leaders who know the truth but do not act upon the truth. It's so easy, friends, to get into this routine of knowledge and head knowledge and thinking that because you have the knowledge, you have what it, what, 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 you have it all. Friends, there are so many people with head knowledge that are not bearing fruit for God. There are so many people who know the right stuff that are on their way to hell because the reality of what they know has not transferred these 18 inches from the head to the heart or whatever it is. You know, some of you have no neck. Some of you have, you know, high necks, whatever that is. The knowledge has to come down to the heart. What you know has to be applied in the heart. What you know about God needs to bleed into your worship of God. And so in all the books that you read, and you should read books, I was just telling my son yesterday, I think it was, that, that, that we need, as Christians, we need to be readers. We need to be avid readers who are constantly in the truth of some sort, either the truth of the word or books that are leading you back to the truth of the word. You will not grow as a Christian if you are not a reader. But that reading isn't an end in itself. Your podcasts that you listen to, your books that you read, the sermons that you hear, friends, these things need to move you to action, to worship the living Christ by your lips and by your life. Do not be like these indifferent religious leaders. Moving on, they fell down and they worshiped, verse 11, and now look at the next half of the verse. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, and frankincense, and myrrh. We learned lastly here that worship is not just characterized by joy and humility, but it's characterized by the fact that it's costly. It's costly. Worship that doesn't cost you anything is not worship. Let me, let, let me clarify. I'm not asking for your money this morning. I'm not saying you come to church and I need your money. I need, your, I need you to sow your seed so that God can return something to you. None of that. That's, that's garbage. 
We're not after your money. We're after what's, God is after what is most valuable to you. What, what do you consider costly above everything? Because where your treasure is, there your heart is. And so in offering these gifts, they are offering their hearts. They're offering their value, their treasure, what's in their hearts. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. You know, there's a prophecy in Isaiah written 700 years before this regarding this coming one, this coming time. And it says in Isaiah 60, Arise, shine, for your light has come, God speaking to his people, and the glory of the Lord shines over you. For look, darkness covers the earth, and total darkness the people's. But the Lord will shine over you, and his glory will appear over you. Nations will come to your light. Nations will come to your light, Israel. Men from the east coming to the light, right? And kings to the brightness of your radiance. Raise your eyes and look around. They all gather and come to you. Your sons will come from afar and your daughters will be carried on the hip. Then you will see and be radiant and your heart will tremble and rejoice because the riches of the sea will become yours and the wealth of the nations will come to you. Caravans of camels will cover your land. Young camels of Midian and Ephah, all of them will come from Sheba and listen to the end of the prophecy. They will carry gold and frankincense and proclaim the praises of the Lord. Again, when I told you that the sovereignty of God is, <laughs> that Matthew chapter 2 is dripping with the sovereignty of God, that's no empty claim. Even the gifts that are presented to the Lord Jesus Christ by these magicians bear significance. They bear significance. First of all, gold is what they give him. Gold is what they give him. This was to emphasize Jesus' royalty. His royalty. When you read in the Old Testament, 1 Kings chapter 10, and you read about Solomon's wealth, what is Solomon known for? His gold. Everything was made of gold. Everything was made of gold. Because gold is associated with royalty. Kings and queens and princes were marked by their possession of gold. And so this, little did they know, did they know, I think they did know, this was to signify his kingship. His kingship. Jesus deserves royal honor. Secondly, they gave him frankincense. And this emphasizes Jesus' deity. His deity. Frankincense was used in the Old Testament not only for royal processions, but also in various offerings to God. Offerings to God. It was stored in the sanctuary, in the chamber. Frankincense usually refers to something related to the worship or service of God. They are acknowledging that he is divine. He is God by this gift. Whether they knew it or not, we don't know, but we know with God's providence and how he leads us in everything that this bears significance. And lastly, myrrh, this emphasizes Jesus' humanity. 
his humanity. Myrrh was basically a perfume with many different purposes, whereas frankincense would be associated with the worship of God. Myrrh is more so associated with the anointing of man. And this is fascinating in light of other occurrences, mentions of myrrh in the Gospels. It's interesting how Jesus was presented myrrh as a king in a cradle, so to speak. Thirty years later, he will be presented with myrrh as a king on a cross. A king on a cross. You remember that when he was hanging there, they offered him wine mixed with myrrh to, in a sense, numb the pain a little bit, and he refused it. He wanted to bear, bear it all in its fullness. It's interesting that John chapter 19 tells us that Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, they used myrrh to prepare Jesus' body for burial in the tomb. And so it's interesting here that, can you imagine, Mary has no idea what's going on. She's pondering these things in her heart. I mean, she's probably just as overwhelmed as the wise men are. At every milestone that this child hits, she's pondering these things, thinking about these things. And now here are these gifts, gifts for a king, gifts for for a deity and gifts as a human. Later on, this myrrh would be used to embalm his dead body as he is placed in the tomb. And so here in these gifts, we have a foretaste of his impending death as the King of kings and Lord of lords. This tells us that he was born to die. This child, it's easy to get caught up in the, in, in, in the emotions of it all, right? But we need to understand that this child was born to die. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. He came to die. To die in our place for our sin. And it's interesting how these gifts lead us in, in, in kind of a foretaste of that death. Well, now as we move on, I want to direct your attention to the king preserved by divine providence, verses 12 through 23. And there's four points I want you to see in these verses, and they're all dreams. Dream number one, verse 12. Look at this. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod. These wise men departed to their own country by another way. How dreams work, I don't know. We know that God is sovereign over the dream world, and how he can send an angel to speak to his people, I don't know, but that's what happens. And though it's not to be sought after as the normal Christian experience, Lord, you know, I need an answer. Send an angel tonight. Give me a dream. I mean, that'd be pretty cool, right? I mean, I wouldn't protest that. Like, Lord, if you want to do that, that's easier for me, you know? But he does it here, warns Joseph, or warns these wise men to depart another way. One, Herod's furious right now. Don't go back to him. Don't go back to Herod. Go another way. Whatever other way it is, go that way. 
So that's dream number one, the dream given by God to these wise men. Dream number, well, look at verse 13. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. So here's dream number two. And this one is given to Joseph. And he said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And I love this about Joseph. We're not told a lot of Joseph's details, right? We know he's not the biological father of Jesus. He's the one to care for Jesus. The Spirit of God had put Jesus in the womb of Mary, the virgin. But everywhere we read about Joseph, he's always marked by obedience. By obedience. That's no small thing. He does what God tells him to do. He's obedient. He rose and he took the child and his mother by night. So this was immediate obedience. This wasn't, all right, Lord, in the morning after I make my coffee, do my morning stretches. No, he, by night, Mary, we got to go. I was just warned in a dream. And by the way, when you go back to uh, verse 12, being warned in a dream, the, the, the warning here is in plur, it's, it's plural in the Greek. So all of these men, however many they were, whether it was the three, like we celebrate in tradition, or whether it was ten, the, the wording in the Greek signifies that they were all given a dream. All of them. I mean, it's one thing for you to wake up and tell your wife, I had this dream and I think we need to move to Hawaii. But then if your wife has that same dream and then your kids all have the same dream, talk with your pastor then, right? Like, like maybe then take action. Well, this is what happens. They all are given this dream and then they're like, I had a dream last night. What did you, me too. What did you talk? We need to get out. Don't go to Herod. You, you too, Herod? Yeah, don't go. Don't go. Let's go. That's what happens. Well, the dream number two is that Joseph is told to go to Egypt, to flee to Egypt. This was no small journey. By night they leave. This is, this is, there's this urgency about this. And they travel miles and days, perhaps months, to get to Egypt. And so what we read in a few short breaths is hot days and long nights. And I mean, traveling with a child probably on a donkey and not in a Honda Odyssey. Like, that's rough. And this is what's happening here. He rose and took the child by night and they departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. And he quotes this second passage from Hosea chapter 11. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. In the original context, the son is Israel. In this Matthew context, he applies that to Jesus. To Jesus. Well, as we move on now, come to the conclusion. Look at verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. He became furious. He sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under. Historians estimate that there were, there were 10 
to 30 families living in this small village at this time. And so you're think, you, you can imagine this little town being flooded with Herod's fury, flooded with Herod's rage because he's threatened by a coming king, a king of the Jews. By the way, this king of the Jews terminology, it's at both ends of the story. The next time the phrase the king of the Jews will appear in the story is at the cross. The king of the Jews. The king in his infancy and then the king on the cross. Again, we read this and it's hard to insert ourselves emotionally. But can you imagine the sorrow and the anguish and the agony of families they can't do anything about it this is the king who did this this is the king who has sent his soldiers to murder all these young boys and there's blood and there's tears and there's agony and siblings that are wrecked because of this account of sin and wickedness Verse 17 says, Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children because she refused to be comforted because they were no more. They were no more. It's interesting how that passage and prophecy comes from Jeremiah 31, and how in that same chapter, just a few verses later, God would promise his people a new covenant. And so it's interesting how this quotation of heartbreak and pain and weeping and tears would be followed up by this king establishing a new covenant for the people of God where all their sins would be wiped away and brought to remembrance no more in God. And so as we move on in the text closer to the end, we pick up in verse 19. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph. This is dream number three. Dream number three. Appears in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. This is almost a direct quotation from the book of Exodus, where we read the account of Moses, and how the Pharaoh, threatened by Israel, also sent to kill what? All the male children. He ordered all the male children to be put to death by these midwives. And so what's interesting is that Matthew is consciously aware that he is presenting Jesus as this true and better and greater Moses who will deliver his people, not from Egypt, but as we saw in chapter 1, verse 21, who will deliver his people out of their sins. So he is the new prophet like Moses, that was prophesied back in Deuteronomy chapter 18. Deuteronomy 18. Well, verse 21 again highlights 
Joseph's obedience. And he rose and took the child from his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there and being warned in a dream. This is dream number four to close out the account. He was warned in a dream. He withdrew to the district of Galilee. And so the reason I called verses 12 through 23, the king preserved by divine providence, is that you see the providence of God, his, his, his sovereignty in action, ruling over times and places and events, leading and orchestrating the whole thing. We see it. Don't just go to Israel, but as he's on his way, you're going to go specifically here. And we're going to see why. He's rerouting everything. He's the author of history, guiding history in his sovereignty. So Jesus is being preserved again and again and again. The Father knows that it's not the time for Jesus to die. He will live 30 years of righteous perfection, righteous obedience. And then at that moment, at that time, then he will be put to death. But not one second before that. God is preserving his son in his sovereignty, in his providence until the right time. And this teaches us that God overrules absolutely everything. When it's your time to go, trust me, it is your time to go. And it's hard for us because we hear of accidental deaths and we hear of premature deaths. And, and it shocks us. Let me tell you something that death is not shocking to God. All my days and all your days, as the psalmist says, are written in his book. And we see him guiding history, literally, to preserve his son because he has a mission for his son. He has a purpose and plan for his son. And the same way he guides all of history for his son, he guides all of history for your good and your joy in him. And so he's warned, Joseph is warned again. And notice verse 23 as we close out. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, you Bible nerds, and I hope that there are you're all of you are Bible nerds, because that's a good thing, are going to want to go and say, okay, where is he quoting from here? Which one of the prophets said that he would be called a Nazarene? And if I wanted to be mean, I'd say, go look for it in Isaiah. But you won't find it in Isaiah. You won't find it in Ezekiel. You won't find it in Jeremiah. In fact, you won't find it in the Old Testament. You have to understand something about this. Nazareth was not a good place. Remember, in the Gospel of John, you have... Was it Nathaniel asking, can anything good come out of Nazareth? What's happening here is that God is sending his rich royal son to one of the poorest no-name places on the planet to experience his childhood. He who is rich becoming poor. He who was high becoming low. He who is lofty, the God of all the universe, eternal, being sent to the lowest of the low. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor, so that we, through his 
poverty might become rich. So while there is no place in the Old Testament to say that Jesus would be called a Nazarene, the Old Testament is filled with passages that teach us that he would be low and despised and empty. A place of scorn and derision. A place that was despised. And we read in Isaiah that he was despised and rejected by men and we did not value him. So Matthew chapter 2 is dripping with God honoring Christ-centered worship and he is worthy of our worship. This one who is the king of all kings and lord of all lords, worthy of your worship, worthy of your joy, worthy of whatever is valuable to you, worthy of you laying down yourself Bowing down your all to him is worthy of it all because he humbled himself. He didn't come and live in the beautiful islands of Hawaii. He didn't come and live at the base of the Swiss Alps. No, he came and he went to the lowest place possible, Nazareth. And that's where he grew up. He who is rich became poor. Why? So that we, through his poverty, through his self-abasement, through his humility, that we might become exceedingly, eternally, abundantly, spiritually rich in him. That's the point of the passage. That's the point of the passage. We see the providence of God all over this passage. This is purposeful sovereignty in action. We see his, his sovereignty in arranging the stars, sovereignly arranging the stars for his son, sovereignly drawing the magi from the east to his son, sovereignly overseeing and selecting the gifts that are given to his son because they tell us something about his person, something about his office, something about his coming death. We see God sovereignly preserving the Christ, sovereignly determining the final dwelling place of his son, Nazareth. God is in that, in all of it. As Acts 17, 26 says, God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. And now listen, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of of their dwelling place. How does he do it? Well, he does it in this case in a dream. Don't go here. Go right here. This is exactly where I want you. He who is rich made poor so that poor sinners in him might become infinitely rich. Bob Coughlin, regarding worship, said, it's not the excellence of our offering that makes our worship acceptable but the excellence of Christ. We cannot worship the eternal Father apart from the eternal Son. Our worship is accepted not on the basis of what we have done, but on the basis of what Christ has done. And he goes as far as saying that worship is God's gift of grace to us before it's our offering to God. We simply benefit from the perfect offering of the Son to the Father through the power of the Spirit. Worship is our humble, constant, appropriate, glad response to God's self-revelation and his enabling invitation. 
Dear friends, worship the Son. May your life be a living sacrifice to him. Throw yourself upon the altar and do not get off the altar. Live on the altar. Work on the altar. Parent on the altar. Be a husband on that altar. Do everything you do, thought, word, and deed, to the glory of the Christ who is worthy of it all. That is Matthew chapter 2.